This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, the Republicans' last and final attempt to repeal Obamacare. Really, this is it for them. Harold Meyerson will report. Plus, the horrible Betsy DeVos, David Dayan, will comment. And first up, Hillary's book about what happened in her loss to Trump is out now. It's called What Happened. Trump Watch starts right now. How do you lose the presidency to the most unpopular presidential candidate of all time? Hillary Clinton, of course, has a book about what happened last November. It's called What Happened. And for comment, we turn to D.D. Guttenplan. He's the nation's editor-at-large. He covered the campaign for the nation, traveling all over the country, starting with the primaries. We reached him today at his home in London. Don, thanks for staying up late to talk to us. It's always good to be here, John. Well, in The Nation magazine, you called Hillary's book Clintonesque. What exactly did you mean by that? <laughs> well, I think I meant uh, slippery, twisty, uh, not very trustworthy, and full of special pleading. Uh, and if I didn't mean it, if I didn't say that, that's what I meant. Uh, yeah, untrustworthy, untrustworthy, and slippery. Uh, and and this is and, and and by the way, I I, I use that adjective because. Um, not so much to be fair, because Hillary is not a major league dissembler. She is blind to her own faults, but probably no more than anybody else. But Bill is a major league dissembler, and he's someone who deserves to have an adjective named after him. So um, Hillary says over and over that uh, she takes responsibility for her loss. She knows she failed all of us who voted for her. She knows she failed everyone who needed her to win, and yet you say in The Nation she has an ugly tendency, I'm quoting, to blame others for her own failings. Doesn't she say over and over that it's all her fault? Uh, She says often that it's her fault, but there are two parts of that. She says often that it's her fault, but then almost every time, within a page or two, sometimes within a sentence, she says... For, she says, I did this, and I, take, and I take it, it's on me. But on the other hand, didn't I do particularly well, given, <coughs> excuse me, given what I was up against? Or uh, I did this, and it's on me. But if you really look at it, it's on the media or on, uh, you know, or on Bernie Sanders for talking about it, or it's on this or this. So she, she, takes, she, she takes the blame but never the responsibility. So that's one part of it. And the other part of it is that the book has an odd title because it's what happened, which is, of course, what we would all like to know. How can, how can somebody lose to the least qualified person ever to run for president who was ahead in the polls um, and something that was supposed to be a slam dunk? But the book is really more what happened to me. Hmm. It's, not, it's not actually an answer about what, what happened. And uh, one of the things that she never talks about, for example... Uh, which is quite interesting. Her her uh, former pollster, Stan Greenberg, has a an article today in which he talks about. Sorry, her for, former pollster, Stan Greenberg, has a, or recently has an article in which he talks about um, malpractice, and I think that's a strong word to use about a presidential campaign, but warranted in this case. And uh, 
talks about the extent to which they they relied on their big data operation and therefore stopped doing things like polling in key states and stopped paying attention to places like Michigan and Ohio and Pennsylvania, which were, of course, the states that ended up costing her the election. So you don't get a lot of either reflection or detail about what happened in the campaign, how she managed to lose what should have been a, a sure thing. What you do get is a lot of how it felt for her. But isn't that what people look for and want in a in a book from her? What was it like to be you when this happened and that happened? Well, I don't have any problem with people who want to know what it was like for her buying her book. I'm sure a lot of people are going to buy it for that reason. Yeah. And I, I don't think that I don't think it's fair to criticize her for writing it, although you might ask her what she needs the money for or what she's going to do with the profits. I think that is a fair for someone who is so sanctimonious about wanting to do so much good in the world and who keeps quoting in the book the Methodist precept that you must do all the good you can, well, you know, all the good you can doesn't necessarily include piling up millions of dollars in book sales. And uh, those who say, there, those who are of her critics say that doing all the good you can right now would mean when you go on Rachel Maddow, you should talk about Medicare for All and not be pitching your book. I wonder if you agree with that kind of criticism. No, I think if she's got a book to sell, <laughs> she should be allowed to sell it. An author but speaks. I, think, I mean, I think there, there are two, again, people are legitimately angry because many of us, and I include myself, I voted for Hillary and I donated money to her campaign and I had a hand in drafting the nation's endorsement of her, but I didn't do any of that because I thought she was going to bring universal health care or solve inequality or do much about student debt. I just thought she wasn't going to be Donald Trump and she was going to appoint somebody other than Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court. Yeah. And what the one thing that we were told by her campaign again and again and again, particularly in the primaries, particularly at the, those points when it seemed like Bernie Sanders was giving her a real race, was... He is unelectable, whereas Hillary had competence. And, you know, the one thing that, that we were promised is that she would be able to beat Donald Trump. And it's the one thing she didn't deliver on. So I think people are understandably angry about that. But that's, that's different from saying, you know, you shouldn't write a book. Yeah. Well, I want to go back to this blaming others thing. Um, isn't she right to blame James Comey for for transforming the campaign at the very end? Doesn't Nate Silver show that she was ahead up to that point and that this announcement about reopening the investigation of her emails uh, was the turning point uh, in where she went from being ahead to, to losing? Boy, that's a lot of questions. <laughs> I, mean, I think, you know, she, she lost by, what, 60-odd thousand votes. So, yeah. you know, of course she could be right. It could have been James Comey. Or it could have been her Goldman Sachs speeches, or it could have been her emails, or it could have been the fact that, you know, when Donald Trump uh, demonstrated time and time again that he was uh, a sexist pig who, who had no consideration for women, uh, that her role as the supportive spouse as Bill, of Bill Clinton kept her from speaking out as forcefully as another woman who wasn't similarly encumbered might have been able to. Um, you know, as for Nate Silver, well, he's a smart guy, so he ought to understand multivariable analysis. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I'm not saying that she doesn't have a case about Comey. Uh, she probably does. And, you know, I, as I write in The Nation, 
sexism and misogyny certainly played a role in an election this close. They might have cost her the election, too. But my problem with Hillary is that she's often talking about the stacked deck, but she never complains about the stacked deck except when it's stacked against her. Mm-hmm. Well, and of course, there's a, 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 a another deeper question is, yes, it was a very close election, and she almost... Uh, got enough votes in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Ohio to put her over the top. And yes, she did win the popular vote by 3 million votes, but why was it close in the first place? It wasn't well, supposed right. to be and close. That's what goes to the malpractice question. This yeah. is an election that should never have been close. And that, frankly, a, a, a candidate, pretty much any candidate who didn't have her enormous baggage train would have had a better run against Donald Trump. Let's. You mentioned the the speeches uh, to Goldman Sachs. This is something that she understand, or at least that she brings up in the book. Is something that she was blamed for uh, mishandling. That she gave the speeches in the first place. That she took such immense amounts of money to do it, and then she wouldn't release the the text. What What do you think is her understanding of why that was wrong? And do you, does she have the the correct understanding? Well, her understanding is. That- Excuse me. Her understanding is that it was bad optics or a bad optic. I believe that's the phrase she yeah. uses. So it's it's not that she did anything wrong. It's that it 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 looked bad, and of course she should have realized that it would have looked bad after 2008 to be seen cozying up to Wall Street for vast paydays. But you know that's as far as she goes with that, and she never talks about the way in which Bill's policies completely, you know. This, uh, destroyed Glass-Steagall and, and freed Wall Street to go on the kind of splurge that it crashed from in 2008. And she never talked about, uh, you know, the, the fact that nobody was, was sent to jail. I mean, the, part of the problem is that Hillary went, made lots of speeches, many of which I heard, and some of which were excellent, about what she wanted to do for people. But she never gave a sense for people who felt that they'd been shafted by the system, which was quite a lot of Americans by 2016, she never gave the sense that she was on their side. And the, the question in this last election wasn't, what are you going to do for me? It's, which side are you on? Which side are you on? Well, of course, her view is that she's on the side of doing good, uh, doing good for middle-class uh, Americans. And she had very detailed plans of all the good things she was going to do. Her website... You know, had pages and pages of her, of her plans. Uh, you obviously well, have a different idea. You obviously there's have a, a, there's a. There's a plaintive point in the book where she says, she she calls out this pollster Stan Greenberg by name and says he didn't he he thinks she didn't talk about jobs enough, but she did. And here's a chart yeah. of word frequency in her speeches and how often she used the word jobs. Well. She did use jobs a lot, and she, but the thing is that people didn't believe her. They just didn't believe she cared. I mean, you know, this is, even in this book, which, where she's presumably trying to position herself as someone who has learned from what happened, she talks about deciding to run for president this time after spending the winter, New Year's, at the De Laurentiis estate in the Dominican Republic. I mean, how is somebody who's been laid off in Detroit, supposed to relate to that. 
SGI just checked in with Oscar De Laurentiis before this show to see how he was doing. You're not in touch with the De Laurentiis? You don't vacation? No, I'm, not and... on, I'm not on their list anymore. <laughs> not, not anymore. I think well, you know, we... John, we're, 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 we're in danger of doing something which is very easy to do with this book, which is to spend all our time arguing about what happened in the election. Yeah. That isn't really why the book matters, and it's not really, I think, why people are criticizing it, because... You know, I think Hillary is perfectly entitled to tell her side of the story, and I think in terms of how, how it felt, she does a good job of telling it. But this is about where the country is going, and particularly where the Democratic Party is going, and Hillary was, for the last year and a half, the standard bearer of the corporate centrist wing of the Democratic Party. That's who brought her to power. That's who sided with her. That's who put their thumbs on the scale at the DNC, something she doesn't talk about in the book at all. Uh, and that's who's resisting, even now, things like you know endorsing uh, single-payer. And it's the, it's the fight over actual power, over who's going to decide which way the Democratic Party goes and what the Democratic Party stands for. And Hillary has made it clear that she has no intention of bowing out from those fights. You know, she started her, I forget what it's called, Together, Together, Together or something. Stronger Together. That's it. You know, she started her version of our revolution, our counter-revolution. Of course, what her defenders say is, look, yes, there was this divide between the Clinton supporters and and the Bernie Bernie supporters, but, but... Hillary beat Bernie by two million votes in the Democratic primaries, and it you know she won fair and square. Then she beat Donald Trump by three million votes. So, uh, so she must have been doing something that a lot of people liked. Well, she was doing something that a lot of people liked, but you know those are two separate issues. The Democratic primaries are the Democratic primaries, and it's interesting that she complains about you know the rules and coverage when it comes to her and Trump, but she doesn't complain about it when it was all in her favor during the primaries. Um, And the other thing is that I guess you can take two views of this. and I think they're they're both reasonable views. It's just that only one of them is my view. You can take the view that Hillary won more votes, so we should do the same thing again, but just push a little harder. Mm. Here in Britain, that's called the one more heave theory of politics, (laughs) which is, you know, we almost got the ball over the goal line, so just all together, push one more time. Don't do anything different. No need to engage in self-criticism, which would change our policies. We'll just push harder, and this time we'll win. And, you know, if that's what you think, then uh, you should sign up for, you know, our counter-revolution, and, um, and good, good luck to you. I mean, I think that uh, the Democrats lost what should have been an easy win, not because it was an easy election year, but because they were running against Donald Trump should have been an easy win, and they lost it because they failed to make clear to people who have been suffering for the last eight years that their policies were going to make any difference in their lives. Well, there was a big fight by the Bernie people. You covered it very closely to, to, uh, to make the Democratic platform uh, more, more, uh, more responsive to those issues and the needs of those people. Hillary did run on that platform. Um, it was the most progressive platform the Democratic Party has had. But you had, I mean, you know, as an example, you had 
Hillary finally, after, after playing footsie with this for the whole campaign, finally coming out against TPP and saying, you know, that if she's elected, TPP will be undone. But then you have Tim Kaine and, uh, you know, others saying, well, actually, you know, we'll see when we get into office. Maybe she didn't mean it. I mean, you know, it was, yes, the, pro- the platform was very progressive. But again, people didn't believe that Hillary would really do it. Yeah, I think that's true. People did not, and, and partly that was because Hillary didn't seem all that enthusiastic about it, it seemed to me anyway. Maybe I was just too much of a Bernie supporter, but it seemed like her heart was not in the platform. Am I being unfair? No, well, I mean, I think, look, her heart was in the platform to probably the same extent if that Bernie's heart was in campaigning for her, and he worked hard for her, and she mm-hmm. agreed to this platform. So, I, I don't really see a point in relitigating that, except that if you like that platform and you like the movement that generated it, then you should be, you know, in, in favor of the changes in the Democratic Party that opens it up, makes it more representative, you know, takes it out of the hands of consultants, uh, diminishes the 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 uh, impact of big money on 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 uh, on elections, all of those things. Uh, and that is not the side that Hillary's been on. She's been consistently on the side of let's do what the big donors want us to do. One last thing that she thinks is important, the Russians. The Russians screwed around with our election in many ways, not just by hacking the DNC emails, but whatever it was that they did on Facebook, which we're just beginning to find out about now, and uh, don't, don't we need to pay attention to that too? Oh, we do need to pay attention to that. I mean, look, I, I, think it's, I think it's entirely plausible that the Russians have screwed around with our election, but I think that somebody who complained about, in the case of her emails, that everybody was quick to assume that where there was smoke, there was fire without any real evidence, ought to be more careful about the difference between plausibility and proof. Yes, we need to pay close attention to what the Russians might have done, but so far all we've seen is a lot of, a lot of innuendo and suggestion. We haven't seen proof. We haven't seen, you know, forensic evidence that this server in this building that was that part of the Russian state apparatus had to do with this. That's that's the kind of stuff we haven't seen. The big question of the campaign, Don Guttenplan says, is which side are you on? And that's what Hillary didn't understand about what happened. D.D. Guttenplan wrote about Hillary's book, What Happened, for thenation.com. Don, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having me, John. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and the TrumpWatchPodcast.com. Next up, the horrible Betsy DeVos. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, the Republicans' last and final effort to to repeal Obamacare, Harold Meyerson will explain. But first, Betsy DeVos, she's one of the biggest nightmares in Trump's cabinet, certainly the most, or probably the most unqualified. She's been Secretary of Education now for six months. We want to 
check up on what she has done in her first six months. So for comment and analysis, uh, we turn to David Dayan. He's the award-winning author of the book Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud. He writes for The Intercept, The American Prospect, Vice, and The Nation. David Dayan, welcome back. Oh, thanks for having me on. Well, first of all, remind us about Betsy DeVos's past, who she is, her political record at the time of her confirmation hearings and confirmation vote. Sure. Well, Betsy uh, DeVos, I guess her main qualification for being education secretary is that she was a big Republican donor. Uh, she is. She married into the Amway fortune. Uh, her her her. Uh, the DeVos family is is kind of the uh, owners of, of Amway. Her brother is Eric Prince, who runs Blackwater, or what was once known as Blackwater. But uh, she married into this family and, and became uh, active in politics through uh, donating money. And that, that's, that's pretty much where the qualifications end with Betsy DeVos. Uh, she was active in, in Michigan politics and national politics and donating to conservative candidates and uh, somehow spun that into a cabinet gig. And her political project was to undermine uh, public schools to, to in Michigan uh, to fund campaigns for uh, vouchers and uh, to support... Um, Various forms of private schools and, and for-profit uh, charter schools. Um, that was pretty uh, well known during her confirmation yes, hearings. That's absolutely right. And, uh, you know, what is interesting about her tenure thus far is that you thought that's what she was going to carry through to the education department. Yeah. Uh, however, I think what she's learned is that you kind of need some legislative support uh, if you're going to undermine public education uh, in 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 K through 12, you, you you need to you know have have some Congress uh, passing passing laws to that effect. However, what she has figured out is that higher education is an area where the education department has a lot more leeway, and so her private sector buddies in that arena, she is in a position to help them. Uh, quite significantly. So let's talk about the the two big areas in which she has been, let us say, active: uh, student loans and for-profit colleges to the most uh, outrageous and exploitative institutions in America. Let's start with student loans. Sure. Yeah, uh, and they're related too because uh, yeah. you know, a high percentage of for-profit yeah. colleges uh, are financed through student loans. Sure. But, um, yeah, at this point in America. Most student loans are issued by the education department, by the federal government. Um, however, there are these private sector middlemen uh, that are called servicers that do the day-to-day -day collection of payments on student loans. Even though they are issued by the federal government, we have these private sector companies like Navient, which used to be called Sally Mae, and a couple others that do the actual collecting of the payments and then give them to the federal government. I don't know why. I mean, yeah, I was going to say, why is I that? They check to the IRS every year, yeah. and somehow they get it and cash it, but we have this privatization of the collection of student loans 
that hasn't changed, even though the federal government kind of took over the student loan process in 2010. So you have these very uh, politically connected subcontractors that are engaging in this business, and they're very bad at this business. I mean, they have been fined repeatedly by state uh, authorities and federal authorities for pushing borrowers into costlier plans, hiding information about cheaper options, uh, even overcharging active duty military, a violation of something called the Service Members, uh, uh, Service Members Credit Relief Act, I believe, Civil Relief Act. Um, so, you know, it's one thing that we have them at all, but the second thing is they're really bad at their job. However, what DeVos is doing is kind of safeguarding these companies, not certainly not throwing them over, and she's trying to block them from oversight by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Hmm. Uh, the CFPB has jurisdiction over any kind of debt collection, uh, any kind of unfair or abusive practices in a financial transaction, student loans being one of them. But uh, they were working, they were in partnership with the Education Department for several years on overseeing and monitoring these student loan servicers. And what DeVos has done is she wrote a letter to the CFPB and said, or at least her underlings did, and they said, uh, we're, not having, we're not partnering with you anymore, and we're not going to send you information when we get complaints from borrowers about their servicers. We're not going to send that information to you. We think you're overstepping your boundaries, and we are the only ones who have any kind of uh, responsibility to uh, you know, govern the process of collecting student loans. So she's trying to cut CFPB out of this process. And that, considering the posture of the Education Department, uh, which has been pretty asleep at the wheel on this stuff, and considering the fact that the CFPB is one of the few aggressive enforcers within the federal government, it really has the effect of letting these student loan servicers off the hook. And the underlying problem here is that it, many, many people, millions of people who have student loans fall behind and then face fines, which then are compounding. They get punished uh, by being pushed into costlier repayment plans to cover the fines for falling behind. Um, and the whole thing is being pushed by these private student loan services, servicers. It's a shell game. I mean, they're, they're, these servicers, these private sector servicers, uh, you know, there are a number of options available to students when they fall behind, but they are not being divulged by these servicers to the, the, the student borrowers. Now, you and ask the question, you ask the question, why are there private student loans? Why is this a private profit-making business in the first place? The government no is fully able to collect, as you said, tax payments through the IRS. It's a big job. They seem to do a pretty good job of it. Is, Obama was president for eight years. How come there are? How come he didn't take steps to get rid of the private student loan servicers? I don't know the answer to that. It's an excellent question. It's something I've been asking for years and years and years. In I believe 2014, the Treasury Department did a pilot program where they collected payments directly. Uh, however, we had an election in 2016, and uh, that pro the, the the private program was or, or this pilot program was never fully implemented, and, of course, it was thrown out the window uh, once Betsy DeVos came to town. 
Okay, so that's the student loan servicing industry, private profit-making uh, operation. The other area in which Bessie DeVos has been active is for-profit colleges, a pet peeve of mine and I know of yours. And we're not just talking here about Trump University. Uh, Obama, late in his term, took some strong steps to shut down the most exploitative and dishonest and corrupt of the for-profit colleges. Uh, and then Betsy DeVos became Secretary of Education. You take the story from there. Sure. So, uh, yeah, these for-profit colleges are completely exploitative. They, they move, uh, they use very aggressive marketing techniques to entice uh, students in, and then they supply them with practically worthless degrees that cannot help them on their career paths, and in the process, load them up with tens of thousands of dollars of debt. So, uh, yes, as you said, the Obama administration moved to try to crack down on these, these organizations, and uh, they put together two rules. Uh, one is called the Gainful Employment Rule, which essentially uh, it says that uh, if you're a college, you have to, if you want to get student loan federal financing, you know, if you want to be able to accept student loans that are federally issued, you have to show that uh, the people that come out of your college or university actually can get a job afterwards. So uh, there's a formula that is used, and if uh, colleges fall behind that formula, they can get cut off from getting student loans. The second rule is about uh, if borrowers are defrauded by these colleges because they are lied to about the career placement, uh, that they would have a streamlined process to actually not have to pay those loans that they took out to go to that college. And Betsy DeVos has put both of those rules on hold. Mm. Those rules were, were made in 2016, and uh, she stopped implementation of those rules uh, those rules also rolled back a ban on uh, mandatory arbitration agreements in, in the student contracts with for-profit colleges. So any disputes wouldn't go through the court system, but would go to a separate private arbitrator, uh, which, uh, you know, is dependent on the for-profit college if, if they want to get more business as an arbitrator. So uh, there are a number of different things that she has done. She shut down and uh, there was an interagency task force that was still kind of enforcing and monitoring these for-profit colleges. Uh, DeVos shut that down. Uh, she, she, uh, but, but the main thing is putting on hold these rules that really would have cracked down on this industry. You mentioned Newt Gingrich in your report for The Nation magazine on uh, Betsy DeVos's uh, actions. Where does Newt Gingrich fit into this story? Right. Well, Newt Gingrich is part of this sort of galaxy of lobbyists uh, for, for the for-profit college industry. Uh, and uh, DeVos has both listened to those lobbyists, and she's also hired people directly out of the for-profit college industry to work for her at the education department. The main, uh, uh, the main individual running the fraud enforcement unit at the Department of Education is a former dean at DeVry University, which was a for-profit college that was fined over and over again by state and federal regulators for misleading students. Uh, and, and, and that's not the only. I think there are three or at least between three and four different 
former for-profit college employees that now work at the education department. And, and Gingrich is just someone employed by the education department to jawbone, you know, as a lobbyist. Uh, and and it, it doesn't seem to me that he has a very hard job because the <laughs> boss uh, is perfectly willing to uh, do the bidding of the for-profit college industry. I, I noticed that the Department of Education defended the appointment of the dean from DeVry University uh, being appointed to be in charge of fraud enforcement uh, since he had been in a his employer had been found guilty of fraud numerous times. They said, well, he was an academic dean. He had nothing to do with the fraudulent parts of DeVry University. So, right. I uh, wonder what the academic dean at DeVry University <laughs> Yeah, does. what I have to say as a university professor myself, what does it mean to be an academic dean at DeVry University? So I want to go back a step here. At the beginning of this discussion, we noted that her longtime agenda was to undermine the public schools with voucher programs and support for for-profit charter schools. And you said there wasn't enough legislative support for to make progress on that. I, I, I would think the Republicans would be in favor of voucher programs and for-profit charters. Why, why has she had no resp- inadequate well, no. support from the Republicans in Congress on this? As you know, John, uh, the, the, uh, Congress has been kind of uh, a, a mess <laughs> over the first nine months of uh, President Trump's tenure. Uh, they've obviously been consumed with much uh, weightier issues or, or higher priority issues, let's say, things like uh, repealing the Affordable Care Act and tax reform and, and all of the things that they have done. Uh, so the, the, the problem for DeVos is that uh, she's dependent upon Congress doing its job, and uh, Congress has shown little interest in doing its job. So she is making uh, progress, such as it is. I don't know if I would call it progress, but she is uh, moving on her issues, which apparently are uh, you know, helping out large corporations that want to profit off of education and our students. Uh, she's doing it in the way that she can do it most directly, right now, and that's through student loans and, and rules on for-profit colleges. So she's doing a huge amount of damage in these two areas. Uh, these are uh, the, pro- the for-profit colleges which recruit uh, the more, let us call them, vulnerable uh, young people in America, including a, a lot of vets coming out of the Army, by promising them, first of all, free... Uh, fr- they don't have to pay because they can get loans. And second of all, they are told, with our degree, you're guaranteed of getting a job. And then it turns out, as you've said, the degrees are worthless and they owe $60,000, $80,000 worth in, uh, of debt. Um, something that, as we have said, Obama took steps against. Uh, what is next on her agenda, dare I ask? <laughs> well, uh, you're absolutely right. There, there are two categories. Uh, it's veterans and single mothers. That's that's who's targeted very specifically yeah. for profit industry. Uh, we're ha- going to have to see what the outcome of these rules that she wants to roll back are. Right now, she's just put them on hold, but there is going to be some sort of active rule writing process. The other thing that's quite incredible is that there are sixty five thousand applications from students who were defrauded by their for profit colleges. And the Education Department has not approved a single one of those applications to say, I was defrauded by this college. Mm. I 
feel like I don't have to pay this loan back to you uh, anymore because uh, I didn't get what I, uh, you know, I paid for. And uh, so they have said that any decisions, they said this in late August in a federal court uh, filing, that any decisions on those 65,000 borrowers would take another six months. So you have 65,000 students out there in this country uh, or former students of these for-profit colleges who don't know if these tens of thousands of dollars are going to be wiped off their, their backs or not. And so they're living in this sort of economic limbo where they don't know if, if they're, they're going to have this burden on their financial futures or not. And really, we're going to find out in the next several months whether uh, DeVos is willing to honor uh, the, the, you know, stand behind this idea that if you're defrauded in America, you shouldn't have to pay for that, uh, uh, being, that act of being defrauded. Well, the Department of Education has certainly changed sides in this uh, struggle compared to the Obama years. There are the states, states like California, New York, Illinois. I know that many of the states have been suing uh, the for-profit uh, college, colleges and universities. Uh, can you tell us anything about where those, those lawsuits stand? The states have not only sued the for-profit colleges, they've sued DeVos. Yeah. Uh, 18 states have sued uh, Betsy DeVos over her action in delaying these rules designed to crack down on the for-profit college industry. And we're going to see that lawsuit play out uh, over the next year or so uh, to see if the states can force compliance with the gainful employment rule and the rule on, on borrower defense. Uh, that would be a huge uh, uh, development. If the states were to uh, force the education department to live up to these rules that they set in motion, uh, so we'll have to see what happens there. States continue to, uh, you know, do their various crackdowns. Uh, there was a school called the Charlotte School of Law uh, in in Charlotte, North Carolina, that uh, the state regulators in North Carolina recently shut down, even though uh, uh, DeVos was trying to at the same time as the state was shutting them down, DeVos was trying to reinstate federal financing, uh, mm. uh, enabling Charlotte School of Law to accept federal student aid uh, once again. And uh, this, this, this Charlotte School of Law, interestingly enough, had hired the former advisor to Betsy DeVos during her confirmation hearing. Oh, so it was clear that Charlotte School of Law was trying to, you know, to, uh, try to get some favors from the federal government, but the state regulators stepped in and shut them down. So that is one thing that you might start to see, is that the state regulators and state attorneys general get more aggressive, seeing that there's an absence of enforcement at the federal level. David Dayan reports on my pet peeve, for-profit colleges and the private industry of student loan servicing. He wrote about Betsy DeVos for TheNation.com. Thank you, David. All right, thank you. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, the Republicans' final effort to repeal Obamacare. If they are ever going to do it, it has to be right now. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues.
It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, this is happening. Jerry Quickly. But first, maybe you heard the news. The Republicans are trying again to repeal and replace Obamacare. We thought we were done with this, but we were wrong. But this is the last time they can do it. Really, really, it's the last time. For comment and analysis, we turn once again to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's executive editor of the American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page and other publications. We reach him today, as usual, in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, the biggest question about this is, will they succeed this time? But first, we need to understand what this time is, for the schedule, first of all. Why is this the last and final, really, effort of the Republicans to repeal Obamacare? I thought the last time was their final effort. Well, the last time uh, appeared to be the reductio ad absurdum. They stripped the bill down to sort of skeletal form, and so people thought once you get past the skeleton, nothing is left. <laughs> yeah, uh, just just dealing with you know the the erosion of the dead. Uh, but um, <laughs> actually, uh, the 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 reason this would be the last is after September 30, as a result of Senate rules. Uh, any any legislation of this nature would require uh, 60 votes. The Democrats could uh, say, uh, we, 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 you know, this requires 60 votes, and they're not going to get 60 votes. There are only 52 Republican senators, and they haven't uh, managed to get more than 49 of them to support any of the previous versions. So the clock is ticking. Uh, and on uh, midnight uh, between September 30th and October 1st, uh, it is no longer possible uh, for them to pass it with 50 votes plus uh, tie-breaking Vice President Mike Pence, who would be able to cast the 51st vote. So that's why this is uh, the, the presumably the last gasp, and, uh, but we don't know whether it will uh, pass or fail yet. And then the second big question I have to ask you is, how is this bill different from their other repeal and replace bills? The other ones were rejected by Republicans, actually. Why is the, How is this bill different? Yeah, well, that, that's actually a Passover question you're asking <laughs> on, uh, on Rosh Hashanah. Well, I'm sorry, uh, I apologize. Uh, why, is this, uh, why is this bill different from all other uh, idiotic right. uh, uh, efforts to repeal? Uh, the Affordable Care Act. This one basically uh, focuses on uh, getting rid of Medicaid as we know it. That's its chief, uh, uh, that's really its centerpiece. Uh, Medicaid is a mixed, uh, in terms of its funding, mixed federal state program uh, to care uh, for the indigent and others who aren't old enough to be on Medicare but have, uh, are, are not covered under Medicare but are poor or, or Several other conditions qualify uh, qualify you for it, but but mainly it's lack of income and lack of uh, uh, enough income to have health insurance or not getting health insurance through your job. Uh, this really throws that uh, to the states, and it throws it to the states in such a way that the states that uh, had the uh, human decency and smarts to accept the extension of Medicaid, which is a major part of the Affordable Care Act, which uh, raised the uh, income level of eligibility for receiving it. Uh, 31 states accepted uh, that and therefore were able to ensure 
you know, a good deal, you know, millions more people, probably up to 15 million more people, uh, were, were able to get health insurance as a result or health coverage as a result of the Medicaid extension. 19 states, however, did not uh, accept the extension, uh, even though almost all of the uh, funds were coming from the federal government. They would have to put up a relative pittance. Um, and that was all based on ideology. It was 19 states, all of which had 19 governors who said that uh, this is going to, uh, you know, augur socialism in our time or, or, you know, or just didn't like the idea of government coverage of uh, uh, more health care for uh, more poor people, maybe who are disproportionately uh, people of color. I note that uh, nine of the 11 states of the old Confederacy were among the states that did not extend Medicaid. So the, the, the Grand Cassidy bill actually perversely uh, directs more money at those states and uh, takes money away from the 31 states uh, that either you know, that accepted the Medicaid extension or that just have been more generous in terms of their own state allotments uh, in, uh, in covering uh, the medical needs of the poor. Now, so, I, ha I have uh, to ask you a question yeah. about this. So the yeah. Republican bill would shift federal funds away from the states that have expanded coverage and shifts money to states where Republican leaders have refused to expand Medicaid or encourage enrollment. Why do they think that's a good idea? Well, to begin with, those are their Republican states, ah. um, A. B., uh, I mean, it's not entirely clear that that's what the money would be used for in those states anyway. These states have a history of denying coverage or, or providing at the lowest level, like Mississippi, uh, which, which offers, you know, uh, Medicaid at, at, at such a, a low level that uh, not a hell, hell of a lot of people there who are poor uh, can get it. Um, uh, but it, it, it's, a, it's a red state bill. About, uh, and then, but that said, there are a lot of red states where the governors had just enough common sense or common decency uh, to uh, say, yes, we'll take the extension. So Ohio, for instance, under uh, John Kasich, uh, you know, or, or, or a state where there was one Democratic governor amidst a Republican legislature, Kentucky. Kentucky, uh, yeah. Democratic Governor Steve Bashir accepted it, and Kentucky uh, had a huge number of people who benefited from the Medicaid uh, extension, uh, something that uh, still really doesn't seem to have uh, been a factor in the decision of uh, Senator Mitch McConnell of Kentucky, the Republican leader who's behind this, uh, you know, to uh, to push the bill. The the ultimate example of chutzpah, though, is is one of the bill's sponsors, uh, 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 Senator Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, uh, was complaining that uh, uh, there are four states. They really get a disproportionate uh, amount of, uh, of revenue from the Affordable Care Act. California, New York, Massachusetts, and Maryland were the four culprits. That is frankly not fair, he complained. Well, I mean, you know, this is like the, uh, <laughs> the kid who kills his parents and complains that he's an orphan. Uh, the reason that's the case is they accepted uh, the, the Medicare extension funds and uh, did a good job of, uh, of providing the care to their uh, residents, whereas... Uh, the states that he said were, uh, you know, the, the victims of this were the states that actually chose not to because of their 
Republican ideology of their governors. So, you know, it's a little bit of a, a chutzpah there in, uh, in making that claim. If you just tuned in, we're speaking with Harold Meyerson about the last and final Republican attempt to repeal and replace Obamacare. Well, there is this Republican ideology that they call personal responsibility. You are responsible for your own health. You shouldn't count on us taxpayers to take care of you. So getting rid of Medicaid, uh, that's justified because, you know, if they're sick, it's their own damn fault. Uh, it's their own damn fault that they're poor or young or, or people of color. Uh, it's, not our, it's not our responsibility to take care of them. That is right. a, kind of the bedrock yeah. Republican ideology. It's bedrock Republican and it's bedrock uh, white Dixiecrat. And remember, uh, you know, the, essentially modern Republicanism is a fusion of, of the white racism of, uh, of, of, the, uh, of, of the South, plus uh, the ideology you just described, uh, which was that of uh, the more, you know, the more conservative wing of the Republican Party outside of the South. Uh, the two have fused, I think, at this point into an in indistinguishable uh, gelatinous goo of just uh, <laughs> uh, anti-human uh, priorities, if, if, if we can call it that. Uh, and as I said, uh, nearly half the states that rejected uh, the extension of Medicaid uh, are, uh, are from the South, yeah. uh, where, yeah. you know, the... the goes along with the history of having like no minimum wage laws and and, and, and such as that. Uh, there was an op-ed in the New York Times today. I wanted to get your response to it. The author argues that there is a good thing about this Republican repeal effort that uh, it solves a problem of Obamacare, which is that Obamacare limits the ability of states to innovate on health care. States are different. States have different priorities. Some states have younger populations, which have different health needs than states that have older populations. Some states might want single payer and others might not. And uh, now, under the, if this bill were to pass, states could innovate according to their own needs. What do you think of that argument? Well, or states could innovate according to their own biases. That's, that's, that's the problem. You know, uh, as I said, Medicaid is a joint state-federal program right now. Medicare isn't. It's just a national program. And you don't hear these, uh, these <laughs> issues coming up when people talk about Medicare. I Excellent point. These states could innovate about that, too. Uh, but, you know, but Medicare is, uh, is, is too politically popular uh, for the Republicans to attack, though they certainly did uh, in the years leading up to it and then for the first couple decades thereafter. Uh, now, the, the tricky thing with Medicaid is that uh, the, the program has grown so that, you know, it, it's not quite as easy as it used to be for Republicans to attack it directly because so many of the recipients now are white, uh, not, not simply the minority poor, but uh, the downwardly mobile white working class is on it as well. There are 70 million recipients of Medicaid uh, in the United States these days. Uh, which is, uh, you know, a function of raising the income threshold by which you're eligible, so more people are eligible, and the downward mobility of many in the white working class, those two things coming together make it politically, uh, uh, you know, stronger than it used to be. And we'll see if that has any effect 
uh, on how, uh, how the vote in the Senate goes. The Congressional Budget Office scoring, as it's called, of the previous attempt showed that uh, something like 20 or 24 million people would lose their health insurance under the old Republican attempt to repeal Obamacare. What does the Congressional Budget Office say about the effects of this new bill? Nothing yet, because it was only unveiled uh, late last week, uh, and uh, they haven't had time to score it. And it's pretty complicated, because each state would pursue its, uh, you know, uh, with more autonomy, as that New York Times op-ed said, uh, would pursue its own plan. Uh, but I think most estimates so far by uh, groups like the Kaiser Family Foundation suggest it's in excess of 30 million Americans who would lose their health coverage, not, not the 22, 24, 23 we were seeing as the uh, CBO estimates of the uh, earlier legislation. Okay, the big question. Everybody is pounding on the glass here saying we want to know the answer. Is this last and final effort to repeal Obamacare any more likely to pass than all the other bills that have failed? We don't know. Uh, Ryan Paul says he's uh, against it because it's not truly libertarian. I think Susan Collins is a safe no. She has been. And so all eyes turn to Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, uh, whose constituents have made it very clear to her that they do not want uh, changes to uh, to Medicaid and to the ACA. Uh, the Republicans are trying to say, well, we can carve out all kinds of exceptions for Alaska. We can uh, give you this. We can give you that. We can give you a tropical climate if you want it. <laughs> We're going uh, to. We're going to give you a tropical climate. Yes, yes. Well, 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 but it's, not, it's not because of human-created climate change. Uh, so uh, uh, nobody knows, uh, and at least uh, I don't know. So tell them to stop pounding on the glass. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, we have about four minutes left here, and I just wanted to check in with you on a completely different topic. The California State Legislature passed a really big bill declaring the entire state a sanctuary for undocumented people. The bill is awaiting signature by Governor Jerry Brown. Jeff Sessions says this bill will allow gangs, I'm quoting, to smuggle guns, drugs, and even humans across borders and around cities. That makes a sanctuary city a trafficker, a smuggler, a gang member's best friend, close quote Jeff Sessions. Wow, that sounds really bad. What is this bill? (laughs) (laughs) The bill basically uh, reaffirms uh, the the policy of of many cities in California, and now now the entire state, saying that police departments and uh, county sheriff's departments should not uh, be apprehending people uh, by virtue of their immigration status. That's not something they can ask about. And it uh, limits any cooperation with, uh, with ICE, with the uh, uh, immigration agents, with La, La Migra, uh, to uh, only those uh, who have been uh, convicted of, uh, of a certain set of felonies. And there was negotiations between Kevin DeLeon, the author of the bill, and the president of the state senate, and uh, Governor Brown, over how many felonies would be included, and there were a, a longer list, actually there are 800 felonies, uh, for which uh, uh, those folks can be held for ICE, but uh, there are many, many more reasons uh, that uh, they cannot be held for ICE. And so it, it really uh, is a political statement, as much of what the legislature has done in the past uh, seven, eight months are political statements 
uh, in direct opposition on, on, on climate, on immigration, uh, on a host of issues. Uh, it, you know, Sacramento was becoming uh, the uh, alternate American capital, mm. uh, uh, which is a reflection of the politics of, uh, of, of California. Well, the the big concession that I believe Jerry Brown insisted on was that ICE be uh, allowed to remain in the jails. We were against this. We, the ACLU, uh, um, we we didn't want ICE in the jails, but ICE stays in the jails, interviewing people, checking who's there, deciding what they want to do about it. Our view is that a lot of people in jail have not yet gotten a trial. They are innocent. ICE should not even be allowed to talk to them. Our view is the punishment for a crime is jail time, and that's it. Deport- deportation is not part of the criminal justice penalty uh, system. Jerry Brown insisted on ICE being allowed in the jails, and uh, I guess everybody's going to support this. Is Well, they did. They all voted for the bill anyway. Uh, is there any reason to think Jerry Brown is not going to sign this bill? No, no. The, the bill is the result specifically of his negotiations with De Leon. So there is no reason to think Jerry Brown will not sign this bill. And then, then Jeff Sessions is going to come after the state of California, and then what's going to happen then? We go to the Supreme Court? Yeah, well, De Leon is in uh, D.C. Actually, uh, was in here yesterday, and I uh, I met with him, and he had just come from a meeting with uh, former Attorney General Eric Holder, who was assuring him that uh, Jeff Sessions doesn't have a leg to stand on, that the federal government cannot uh, compel behavior from uh, local uh, police departments or or uh, or state troopers or, or, or folks like that, and that it's a federal overreach to withhold federal funds if they do. Um, so uh, that will be fought out in court. Harold Meyerson, read his new piece on the last and final Republican attempt to repeal Obamacare. It's called Republicans Kill Parents, Complain They're Orphans, and it's at prospect.org right now. Thank you, Harold. It's always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guests, D.D. Guttenplan of The Nation, talked about the trouble with Hillary's campaign memoir, What Happened? And David Dayan talked about the trouble at the Department of Education with Betsy DeVos. Thanks to our engineer, D'Angelo Jones. Thanks to our producer, Renee Reynolds. Thanks to Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, this is happening. Jerry Quickly. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. <laughs>